0: You're listening to MHD Off the Record. On this episode, we're speaking with Sylvia Castillo. Sylvia Castillo is the principal consultant for Castillo Consulting LLC, specializing in nonprofit strategic planning, executive leadership development, and public policy advocacy. Sylvia's projects cover a diverse mix of social justice initiatives and women of color organizing efforts. In 1990, she co-founded the Community Coalition for Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment with now Congresswoman Karen Bass. Enjoy the show.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Siobhan, for opening us up today. This is an exciting episode of MHD Off the Record. Uh, Get to interview one of my heroes, uh, one of the folks who uh, gave me political life in this city. Uh, and help me find a path uh, to be able to make a contribution Uh, so I tell everybody Sylvia is one of the people that I tell everybody um, I give her credit for the work that we've done if there's anything that I'm doing that you don't like you should call her (laughs) because she started it (laughs) Um, and uh, but in all seriousness uh, Sylvia it's great to have you thank you for being here today with us on Crenshaw Boulevard on MHD Off The Record
2: good to be here
1: excellent so there's a bunch of things i could ask you um sylvia was like the uh trainer in chief the griot in chief at community coalition kept us aware of the uh the history of the movement and uh the path that got us to where we were at that at at that uh moment uh can you tell us your story because i find it so uh, enlightening and inspiring your story of how you got involved in activism and the city of Lakewood and all the rest
2: um, it starts when I'm about 10 years old I had a grandfather and a mother that were union activists and they helped us move into a all-white neighborhood for the idea of accessing better education uh, there was a immediate white backlash. And then there was a fight back. And that fight back was done by a coalition of Jewish Democrats uh, and activists from the Compton and Inglewood area that we're also trying to integrate. So that quickly taught me that I was a person of color. The uh, lesson was that if you wanted to hold your ground, you needed to Resist, you Mm -hmm. needed to fight back.
1: Excellent. And so from there, uh, you come into the main line of the social justice movement, sort of the modern era of the social justice movement, as I'll call it. Uh, Both the fight for ethnic recognition and rights. So, you know, as a Chicana, uh, you did that work, but also class struggle. So social and economic justice, which we continue to fight for. To this day, we call it equity now, yeah. uh, but it really started off as, you know, a struggle between the classes about who gets what and who pays, and so. How do you embark on that part of your activism?
2: I think it was after I got involved with the fair housing movement that quickly we moved into working with Cesar Chavez as he was organizing. At that point, it was the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee. and My mother, because of her union um, ties, was part of a group that was always showing solidarity by bringing material goods. Once you're there at the 40 acres, it didn't matter what your age was, you were taught how to make banners, how to mm-hmm. um, call people on the phone if we're lucky to have phones, and to essentially be agitators. So that was very um, stark to see where I lived, which was a suburban neighborhood, and to actually see people who lived in corrugated shacks without indoor plumbing. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, the biggest catalyst for me to re- recognize that the injustice went beyond skin color and that we were struggling with the haves and the have-nots.
1: And then you begin to do what I called legacy work. So Mm -hmm. whether it's helping to get the Chicana Studies Department started, which is still happening today at Cal State LA, Mm -hmm. uh, the Chicana Service Center, which Mm -hmm. up until very recent history was right across the street from City Hall actually, where I now uh, work every day. Uh, And then later, um, later, 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 the Community Coalition, which is Mm -hmm. again, a formidable organization in the city today. Um, So you go through this period of institution building and, and organization building. Uh, talk to us about that and how that was important to you and, and how that uh, impacted your perspective.
2: I think the institution building was critical. I had come up at a time where there had been a lot of anti-poverty programs, but very few leaders that had sustained any of the important work that was being done to involve youth in action that was going to change um, the environment that they lived in and to give them access to education. So. When I was a nurse, at that point I was a nurse, I began to experience that children were being abused and that they were exposed to crack cocaine. And it was at that point that it became clear that we couldn't just do activism, that we needed to build a formidable institution that was gonna crank out masses of leaders because it was going to take a couple of generations to turn that around. And
1: talk to me about Community Coalition. So this is the sort of uh, the point at which I enter uh, the background of the scene uh, of the movement here in Southern California. You and Congressman Bass, uh start that uh, organization in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, and it grows into, you know, this sort of uh, massive uh, influential organization that it is today that both Siobhan and I uh, have history with.
2: Well, the community coalition began as a very important experiment. People had told Karen and I there was nothing that we could do, that this was going to be a generation of youth uh, that we were going to have to throw away, and that drugs were drugs, and if you were going to do anything about drugs, you were going to be on the side of the police. So that immediately became a challenge for Karen and myself, which was, um, I think, an important catalyst. When you tell someone no, you better believe that mm-hmm. you're going to re- get a, uh, an action in opposition. And that's what Community Coalition was, that we had this opportunity to organize in South L.A. where there was a long history of activism around organizing at the neighborhood level as well as to deal with alcohol, which is a drug. Mm-hmm. And based on that kind of experience, we reached out immediately to some of the our seniors are the folk we would look at as heroes and heroines, and you know some of them, Juanita Judice, mm-hmm. who was part mm-hmm. of a South Central organizing committee that worked on bringing together a conditional use permit that would give neighbors a right to talk about what was being built in their neighborhood. Those were the people that mentored Karen and I who taught us that if we were going to make a change and and shift not only the debate around incarcerating a drug problem, which is a medical problem. But if we wanted to build power, we needed to take territory and hold our space.
1: Tell me about the, there are lots of aspects of the community coalition that we could probably talk an hour about, but I know one of the things that now in present history is so commonly talked about, it's almost rhetorical. You don't even it almost, it's almost lost a lot of its meaning. So people will say, oh, we're organizing black and brown people, or black and brown people are doing this together, black and brown people are doing this. (laughs) The time I came to the coalition, it was not done that black and brown people did political work together. And in fact, quite the opposite, it was black and brown people were being set up to do political work against each other and and to be competitive over, you know, representation and, places, you know, positions in public institutions and schools and seats in schools and all the rest. Um, how did that, uh, one, was that new to you all when you started the community coalition as it was to most of us? And then, and two, why did you all pursue it uh, in the, with the vigor that you did? Uh, and, and now really it's turned into the rule rather than the exception.
2: I think we came out of uh, the same political experience, which was that was called Third World Organizing, where we were watching the rest of the world, all the third world nations of color coming together and redefining what life could be and mm-hmm. what justice was. So the notion that, that there would be black versus brown did not flow from those ideas nor through our practice. We were organizing here in South Los Angeles with Asian, because Japanese folks lived along Crenshaw Boulevard, Mm -hmm. uh, Latinos and African Americans. So it was out of our um, experience that it's on the neighborhood level, a community level, there is no dissection of people by color. And so it was about building power and to do that,
0: would be to link arms with her neighbor, which were black and brown. And it's interesting because the community coalition was literally the first time I ever even heard of anything like that. And the thing that was so powerful for me to even um, see, that it was actually very conscious. Because I remember being in Say, yeah, I was a part of South Central Youth and Power Through Action. And I remember if we were low on African-American females or if we were low on Latino males, we, we took an effort to make sure we were recruiting so we always had that balance. Mm-hmm. I never saw that anywhere else. And that was something that I learned from being at the Community Coalition. When you guys were developing that, was that something that you even envisioned being able to create? I think we,
2: we viewed it as an operating assumption that that's the way it's going to be because that, that's life. Mm-hmm. And this is a vehicle, the Community Coalition is a vehicle. And who are you putting in there? The folks that make up the neighborhood and the people that need to have access to power. So it was not, um, it wasn't up for debate. Now I can say that when the idea hit the road that not everyone welcomed the notion of black and brown people being in the same room. And in fact, it still is, I think, something that we need to struggle to attain in a Mm -hmm. consistent way, Mm -hmm. but it's the lessons from Community Coalition that I think that really get the conversation going and actually act like a positive pressure to see that the power needs to be not only shared, but we are one. And mm-hmm. we are, believe me, the line is drawn very, very clearly. You are not white. And that what flows from that is your life expectancy. So I think, you know, Community Coalition has been for us an important part of organizing the next generation so that that will be the operating assumption mm-hmm, for mm-hmm.
1: them. Yeah it's very exciting a, a good portion of my team on the city council are like Siobhan people who came up in Say Yeah <laughs> uh, and in youth orga- organizing and so it's great because I know there are certain things that I don't have to explain like uh, the things Siobhan just described moving forward uh, now you're working with lots of uh, key organizations in the region Uh, one of them that does a lot of work in the eighth council district is the genesee center Uh, and they have an intersection i I think one what's important about the genesee center is it really focuses on domestic violence women and african-american women especially but women of color but also it works in the it has an intersection with homelessness which is the that is the issue in Los Angeles now. Our economy has gotten to the point where people literally cannot live, uh, live indoors. Uh, and the problem only seems to be getting worse, even though, you know, we're throwing all sorts of public resources at the issue. Um, can you, uh, one, talk about your work with the Genesee Center and then talk about how you see homelessness in the, you know, in the line of things like we had mass incarceration or the crack cocaine epidemic and, and now this it's showing up as homelessness.
2: Well, domestic violence is now the silent pandemic, mm-hmm. and that's been declared by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. In South Los Angeles, if the Genesee wasn't, if, if there wasn't an organization like Genesee, um, we would see a lot more homicides. Mm-hmm. At this point, what we are looking at is that the women and children that are on the street, 85 percent of them came out of being victimized in a domestic violence situation. Mm. And they are living on the street because they had to choose one day were they going to survive the next beating or did they need to take their chances out on the street. So Genesee provides not only an intervention but provides an opportunity to prevent your children from assuming that it's okay for somebody to put hands on you as well as a way out and a way out is through their housing program as well as their workforce development program. The issue of homelessness in Los Angeles is an epidemic. It is a human humanitarian crisis. It is one that we should intervene with, with all of the energy that we unleash on an earthquake post after an earthquake has happened or a major tornado. That what we are looking at right now, not only is it the devastation of families, but it's the devastation of entire um, uh, peoples. It's mm-hmm. a part of a genocide. Mm-hmm. And to wow. to not wow. it, to not accept that mm-hmm. means that you are going to half step it. Yeah. But if you take a look at, and driving here, all I have to do is go down the street, and you know. That it is very clear who's out on the street and dying Mm -hmm. and there is no reason that we have our most frail the elderly the mentally ill children Mm -hmm. out on the streets when we are in the most powerful and richest country in the world
1: we're in the richest part of the richest (laughs) nation in the world I There was an economic study done uh, that showed California is, by a good margin, the most economically productive region in the world. Right. Uh, we, what? Yeah. Like, wow. California has its own energy. It provides its own food. It provides its own mineral. It, can, it could operate completely on its own and do exports. I mean, you know, we, we, we ship more rice out of California than they do out of China.
2: It's to, the to, sixth largest yeah. economy yeah. in the world.
1: Yeah. And, and yet... Just outside, somehow we can't figure out how to get people uh, to live indoors. I wanted to drill a little bit more on on domestic violence, and I have to say, I always knew domestic violence was kind of a thing, but when I became council member, you know, I reached out to the Genesee Center immediately because I was blown away by this stat: three quarters of the violent crime calls in South L.A. at given points in time, particularly on weekends, are domestic violence calls, and so you know. Gang violence gets all kinds of ink and you would think, you know, that at the police station, they're just, oh, a gang did this and a gang did that and a gang did that. Quite the contrary. It's actually a minority of uh, and this is not to minimize gang violence as a problem, but um, it gets so much more attention to domestic violence. And domestic violence is incredibly common uh, in in our communities. And I think it doesn't get like. It's almost like we're embarrassed to have a conversation with each other about it, a civic conversation.
2: Well, violence programs get developed and designed. Mm -hmm. And you would think that some of the first people you would ask at the table would be people like from Genesee Mm -hmm. that understand not only the cycle of violence, but that understand that if you take a look at the homicide statistics, 10% Mm -hmm. of those homicides were women Mm -hmm. who were murdered at the hands of their partner. Mm that these are not only facts, it's that people, I can say this from the experience of there's, everyone knows somebody who has been victimized. Right, right. It's like the crack cocaine epidemic Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. everybody had a broken branch of your family tree Mm -hmm. because they Mm -hmm. were out there using. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's not even um, uh, that Uh, it's a silent issue because the children show up at at school and they've been beaten. So what does that say? That we are silent, that we turn a, a blind eye, that this, I believe, is still part of misogyny Mm -hmm, sexism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we can call out racism these days but i think that we really need to call it for what it is Mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm, perpetuates mm -hmm. a horrible aspect of oppression
1: right right
0: right and a a legacy from our conquest and and being enslaved Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i have a question about that Mm -hmm. stat being someone who's from south l.a um experienced and witnessed domestic violence in my own home I am curious to know why the stat is so high in South L.A., whereas would you say three quarters of the calls to police are domestic violence calls? Why is it so high here? Well,
1: it's high everywhere. Like, make no mistake. And it's as a proportion of calls in general. So the time period that I'm looking at, remember, crime has violent crime particularly has been historically low, as low as it's been in any of our lifetimes. Um, So there's that part of it. But it's not as if South LA that I saw at least had a higher number of calls. And in fact, law enforcement will tell you they actually worry about places like South LA that have a lot of undocumented a lot of households with undocumented people in them, because people won't call the police. And I actually think it probably applies the same concern to a to a slightly lesser degree. Applies to African American households because if you have one person in the house who's on parole or probation, you also don't want the police coming there.
0: And you're afraid of the police shooting your partner.
1: Exactly. Well, you're afraid of the police shooting your partner, is very, very real. But the police come in your house and say they do their job and they resolve everything, you know, they help bring peace. Oh, but, you know, Jeff over here is on parole and he's in here with this guy who, you know, just did this. And so all of a sudden, Jeff gets locked up and loses his job or whatever um so i get concerned and i continue to have a concern that we actually have no idea how common um you know intimate violence is within households so i I hope that answers your question but sylvia you should comment on that because you have much more expertise
2: no i think that you're right on uh, point i i also would like to hear what you think is happening uh when well, we when we have this conversation, you're of a different generation, so I'm asking you that question.
0: Well, you know, growing up pretty much at the Community Coalition, I've always been taught to look at things from a much larger sociological lens, and I do know that we have high alcohol concentration in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I wonder how much of that contributes to the domestic violence intimate partner violence including the violence towards children i'm wondering how much that contributes to that including you know um, the fact that we do have a lot of depression and mental illness and people are self medicating with drugs that are very harsh right so i'm wondering if that contributes to many of those numbers mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of where i'm thinking mm-hmm. how do we look at it from you know a bigger sociological lens cuz i don't I, I don't believe that people just want to hurt their partners. Mm-hmm. I, I personally just don't have that belief. I know it comes from something. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's ever looked at trauma or looked at the history of slavery, oppression, colonization, you'll see that there are um, a lot of trauma responses. And some of that does include violence towards others. My father was um, mentally ill. He We didn't know. No one told us anything. My dad had bipolar disorder and uh, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. And we didn't know any of this growing up. And yet we were experiencing, he didn't have the help he needed. That's the other thing. There were no resources to help him. So we were experiencing these things and we didn't know where to go to get the help that we needed.
2: And that's where Genesee comes in and recognizes that, you know, you have to break the cycle by involving the young people in prevention and making sure that There is a non-threatening way in which you're able to reach out to folks who don't necessarily understand the circumstances that they're in, that there's mental health issues or that documentation uh, issues, that it, it means that you're enslaved and you're locked in with your her, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. these these um, operating assumptions have to be blown up. And the only way they are is when we bring the light of day to it. And I really appreciate um, Marquis that you have taken time and that you do spend time with Genesee to actually drill down and to, to put a human face on those mm-hmm, statistics.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, you know that's you know one of the hallmarks of our work at the community coalition is to look at problems from the point of view of the victim of the or the mm-hmm. point of view of our folks mm-hmm. uh, not the point of view of the people providing services not the point of view of the people providing the resources for the services uh, and certainly not from the point of view of the people who are paid to treat the problem. Um, Given where we are now and all that you see, uh, the movement has, you know, morphed uh, in a way that I think none of us could have imagined, uh, you know, 10 years ago, much less 20 or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago. And, you know, it's interesting because I see lots of activists who are frankly very effective, uh, but they do things very, very differently, uh, certainly than I was taught. And they look at, they approach problems. Or analyze problems in in a, you know a very very different way than I would. So, or I was taught to. So, for example, you know, I, because I'm a politician, I'll get asked, "Oh, do, what do you think about defund the police?" And I'll say, "Well, you know, I want to be treated better by the police, and I want the police not to accidentally." And I'm making air quotes here. I want the police to not accidentally kill people who are unarmed or, or not a threat to them. I actually don't care how much it costs. I don't care if it's cheaper, the same price or more expensive. But that's because I'm looking at it from the point of view of the people who are uh, 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 of the communities that are feeling the heat uh, from the problem that they rightly point out. Uh, but I don't. But I don't necessarily come to the conclusion that giving them less money makes that problem any less impactful. In fact, many of us could argue that it would make it worse. There are lots of police departments who make less, you know, who have less resources than LAPD, and the people there wouldn't tell you like, "Oh, yeah, it's better here because they have less money."
0: <laughs> and I think the language is so different now, in the sense that I think I, I don't know. Maybe this is me being on the internet. I feel like sometimes the organizing is so bold vocally online and mm-hmm. that they translate. They try to translate some of that, in, I guess, in real life. And it doesn't always translate the same. Because mm-hmm. if you're not in the online spaces, defund the police sounds like, what on earth are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But it's such a common phrase online yeah, yeah. that it doesn't. It's, I would say it's probably more desensitized in my mind and probably a little bit more harsher to a lot of our older generations who are mm-hmm. like, yo, that's a pretty tough Statement: What is mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? Probably a lot of times I've heard people reflect a lot of what you just said. What does that mean? Does mm-hmm. that mean defunding it means that they're not going to kill us anymore? Like, mm-hmm. how does that translate to mm-hmm.
2: that? Well, let me just jump back a, a couple of decades now. Maybe now it's 30 <laughs> decades. Uh, but I remember when we stepped up and we said we wanted to make sure that crack cocaine would cease to be the drug of choice that we would not see our youth dead, incarcerated uh, as a result of it. I remember folks taking that and flipping it quickly into a slogan. And then the slogan essentially said that we were aiding and abetting the police and that we were a part of a resistance toward law enforcement was one. The other was um, that we are, yeah, we're betraying our own community. We're calling for them to be locked up. So propaganda, I think, is always an issue, and it's a tug of war. It's And it goes back to being an organizer. It's easy to put out a slogan. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to organize people door to door and have them stand up for themselves mm-hmm. and stand in the background. Because if you notice those folks that are slinging those hot little uh, slogans, I think that one would say, there needs to be a deeper look at what that represents and who it represents. And if you are part of the masses, would the masses say, I don't want to live in a safe community? No. And people will look at their taxes and say, if this is going to keep me safe, I want it. Why mm-hmm. shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. Why am I the one that needs to negotiate this way? I want to be treated Differently, I want to be treated, you know, appropriately. Uh, but that's a different that's a different demand, and mm-hmm. it's harder to unpack that. You know, so it's always the easy way out to hurl slogans.
1: Well, yeah, it's an interesting time. I mean, the when I started organizing, there was no internet, and so you there weren't the shortcuts <laughs> of talking to. I mean, it's quite a thing. It's you know, you can talk to the entire world very cheaply from your the palm of your hand, and you can say anything, and and if it catches on, there's not much anybody can do to stop it. Um, and it has implications and has expressions all over the place. It's a, it's, a, a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating environment to be in and a very different one. Uh, all right. So I've hit you with the heavy stuff. I'll go to the light stuff now and go to the lightning round. Um, uh, so we have a lightning round here. You have to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. And uh, just a really quick answer, we are trying to build a lexicon and a library of how people see this community mm-hmm. and what stands out to them and, and uh, where uh, folks have affections for sights or sounds or mm. things in people. So what is your favorite song that represents this community to you?
2: Fight the Power.
1: Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Good one. Uh, an activist in South LA who inspires you?
2: Aurea. Montes Rodriguez. Yes, yes, yes. I know her. <laughs>
1: uh, the favorite place in South Los Angeles to have a good time socializing.
2: Dunbar Hotel. Wow. The jazz, the jazz festival. My dad, an interesting. My dad used to sh- shine shoes in front of the Dunbar. Oh wow. In the forties. Wow. So as a child, we were always taken to see the place Poppy used to work. In. Wow,
1: that's. The, I didn't. That's I learned that today. That's a good story. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sylvia, uh, for being with us today. Uh, one of the esteemed activists uh, in the community. I, I, um, my producers are looking at me because I'm supposed to give you an answer, an opportunity to ask me a question. Uh, but it's been so rich, I'm a little bit intimidated to, <laughs> to, to, answer. Uh, but uh, before we close, I'll give you that uh, opportunity to ask a question to me.
2: My please. What do you think about being an elected official now, as opposed to being the executive director of the community coalition?
1: Um, They are different things. I'm glad to be an elected official. In in other words, I'm glad it's me at the table and not Mm -hmm. some other people that could be at the table, um, is what I'll say. Um, The uh, freedom and the extemporaneous and improvisational work that you can do leading an organization, you know, remains appealing to me. Uh, at this point that you know as a critic of a government of the government to be in the government feels constraining sometimes Mm -hmm. because you are a part of the thing that you're criticizing Uh, Mm -hmm. and again I think we'll we'll do good work but uh, it's very very different work (laughs) to put it that way thank you Uh, no you're welcome you're welcome and thank you and thank you for for being with us and uh uh, you know, I invite everybody, you know, look out for the Genesee Center, look out for uh, Sylvia Castillo. It's a very, very rich history and it is a legacy. I think that all of us can one, be proud of, but two, it gives us a pathway uh, to how to make a mark on our communities and our world.
0: That's it. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record and special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lemert Park. For more information, please visit mhdcd8.com and follow at mhdcd8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.